As Danny mentioned, this is the first Q&A of this school year. Um, and so if you haven't been in one, basically uh, what we do is this. You, you can ask questions in any one of three categories, um, Christian living, um, ministry, uh, or Bible slash theology. Uh, what you can't do, and I don't sense that we've had much of this lately, but we had some of this in the past, is what we ask that you not do is that you not purposely try to pit a faculty member against a faculty member. Because uh, we do have differences on the faculty, um, and those are healthy differences. We have differences about the extent of the atonement, limited, unlimited atonement. Uh, we have differences about Romans 7, and the other views are wrong. But we do have, you know, uh, you know we, did, we do have different views on things like that. So, and I don't mind you asking about those things if you really are wanting to, you know, some, to wrestle through it. But don't do it just so that you can sort of get a quote. And I, especially don't set me up or bait me to get a quote that you use with another professor, and I don't really know what's behind the question. And you go into class and say, well, you, you know, you're wrong because Pastor Brian said this in chapel or whatever. So don't do that kind of thing. But if it's a legitimate question, I'm not saying you have to stay away from those things like the extent of the atonement or Romans 7 or issues that, you know, we, we maybe don't all see exactly eye to eye as a, as a faculty. You can certainly do that if it's a legitimate question. All right. So any of those three categories, though, um, Christian living, ministry, Bible slash theology, and so just raise your hand. Danny will take the mic to you, and uh, no guarantee I can answer the question, but we'll give, it a, we'll give it a go, our best shot. So who's going to be first? All right, who's going to be second? All right? All right, here's one. Luke's got one. Since you brought up Romans 7, how do you understand um, sold under sin, that phrase? Understand what? The phrase sold under sin. Oh, um, I take the phrase soul under sin. My view of Romans 7, of course, and there's differences on the faculty, but my view of Romans 7 is that this, these are Paul's words as a saved man. Uh, and the reason why I believe that is, uh, one, the, the, the primary thing, the flow of Romans, because you have condemnation in 118 to 321. You have justification in 321 to 521. You have sanctification in 6.1 to 8.17. You have glorification in 8.18 through 39. You have Israel in 9 through 11, etc. So it just seems to me that the flow of Romans argues that he's talking about sanctification. Thus, he's talking about his experience as a saved man. Um, also, I just ran across something recently I had not seen in all the years I wrestled through this. That's because I'm preaching through Galatians. In Galatians 5, Paul says, walk in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So it's obvious, I don't know of anyone who denies that Romans, I'm sorry, that Galatians 5 is written to believers, walk in the Spirit, don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Interestingly, I'd never seen this, even when I preached through Romans years ago, that the wording that Paul uses in Galatians 5 about you, if you don't walk in the Spirit, you will not do the things that you wish, or you will do the things you do not wish, it's, it's almost identical wording to Romans 7. So that was just another sort of piece in the puzzle for me in wrestling through Romans 7. So all that to say, I think Paul is describing his experience as a saved man, and he's describing the struggle that all of us, if we are honest, 
uh, have to acknowledge we have. Uh, the person, the Christian who says, I don't struggle with sin anymore is, is either lying or is not maybe intentionally lying, but is incredibly self-deceived to say you're not, you don't struggle with sin, the flesh anymore. So uh, the phrase sold under sin, I take there in that passage that Paul, Paul is just saying that this was, uh, you know, this was, uh, I often use the phrase that we are sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, and by practice. And so I think it's Paul's way of saying that, that, th that we're just under sin. We're, we're sinners by, you could say it that way, birth, nature, choice, practice. We're sold under sin. We used to be slaves to sin, etc. So I just see it as sort of a synonym for talking about the fact that we are inherently sinful. And even after we come to faith in Christ, though the sin nature is no longer on the throne, as Paul says in chapter 6, it's still present. It is not... Um, it is not, we are not under the control of it, but we can submit ourselves under the control of it. So, I don't know if you have a follow-up, Luke, or if that's... Okay, good. All right, next, next question. I got one on the very back, Andrew back there. Very way back, yeah. So it seems uh, one uh, somewhat inevitable result of studying the Bible that's a, a negative result is we tend to take things a little bit too academic or too philosophical <laughs> mm -hmm. to the point at which we miss uh, personal application sure. and uh, personal real to life, uh, yeah. living it out in both the spirit of it as well as the letter of it. How do you uh, personally find the, what are the tips you have towards maintaining personal application rather than simply yeah. academic? That's a great question, Andrew. Uh, it's one that I wrestled with actually when I was in Bible college years ago back at Moody Bible Institute. And in fact, I remember on one occasion a chapel, Dr. George Sweeting, who was our president at the time of Moody, he preached a, a message, and in the message he challenged us as students to make sure that in addition to our studies, to make sure that we would have devotions, daily devotions. And I remember I went out and talked to him after the chapel, and not in a challenging way, very, seeking to be very respectful, but I just said, you know, Dr. Sweden, I appreciate what you're saying there in your heart, but I, I, I struggle with the input you've given there because uh, you've almost, in essence, said that your studies are only academic. They can't, f you know, the, maybe this isn't the best terminology, but they can't feed your heart, only your mind. And I said, as students, I know I struggle with this, and all of us do, and I said, what I've determined is that I would not allow that dichotomy to enter in so that every time, like when I had Romans, for example, as a class, or New Testament, you have to read through the New Testament, I determined that I would do my Bible reading for class devotionally, that I would not let myself read it merely academically. And so I really fought that, and I didn't want this sort of false dichotomy that, well, that my studies are academic, and I'll do devotions for, um, you know, for my heart. Uh, the one problem you have with that is, as you said, you, then you can just approach all your Bible college classes as academics and it never, you don't allow it to transform your life, which is a very dangerous thing. Um, but the other danger in that dichotomy is that you can almost set up in your life this idea that something that's academic is not devotional and that something that is devotional should not be academic. And what that leads to, frankly, is some very sloppy devotion, you know, because you just go to the Bible to have God speak to you, uh, not to make sure you're doing something academically accurate to understand it. So it's, it's more like, you know, it's a silly example, but you've all heard the example of the guy who was having his devotions and just said, God, speak to me. So, you know, he did one of these numbers and 
whatever you tell me, I'll do it. And he comes, his finger falls on the verse. Judas went out and hanged himself. Oh, no, that couldn't be it. You know, so, okay, God, give me another verse. And so he came down, and what you do, do quickly. Well, that can't be God speaking to me. So he tried it one more time, and he came down, and uh, go and do thou likewise. You know, so, you know, that, it's never going to happen that way that you would fall on those three verses. But that's a lot of times the way people do devotions. They don't really, they just, they just go to it and say, God, speak to me. But they don't seek to understand who wrote this, why was it written, to whom was it written, for what purpose, what was being addressed. And so, frankly, it leads to some sloppy devotions and sloppy applications. It's sort of like, I'll just pull this verse out of the context and apply it to my life. And it's just a reminder to us that the Bible was not written to us. It was written to either the Corinthians or the Romans or the whatever. It was written for us, but not to us. So if we really want to understand what God is saying, we need to understand why it was written, what was being said. As I often uh, state, uh, the only valid applications are ones that come from accurate interpretations. So if your interpretations are inaccurate, your applications are going to be inaccurate. I mean, surely you've known, everyone in this room can give examples of people you've known, very sincere Christians, love the Lord, and they just have some completely unbiblical, strange applications. Like, you know, I won't drink tea on Tuesdays, and they've got some verse to back it up or something. You know, but what they've got is a very sloppy application from an inaccurate interpretation. So, in answer to your question, what I decided to do as a Bible college student is I, I would not let myself approach my studies as merely academically. And I'm thankful, by God's grace, I was able to sort of root that in my practice or habits because you face the same thing as a pastor. I mean, I'm studying the Bible every week, and I'm preaching it at least every Sunday morning, a lot of times Sunday morning and Sunday night. So I'm studying passages, and if, if I only studied to get a sermon or studied, you know, sort of in an academic way and, and never said, God, wow, as I'm understanding this, what, is the, what are the implications in my life? What should I change? How should this impact me? If I just segmented that, it would be a disaster. So, um, so I guess my challenge to you would be, you all recognize what you said, Andrew, and that is that there is this tendency, I would just say, I, you know, I don't, I don't have really a silver bullet other than to say, fight it. Just fight that tendency. You know, if you've got a uh, uh, something you've got to read here by the end of next week. Like you've got to read the book of, I don't know what books you guys are taking this week, but you know, you've got to read the Gospel of Mark. Well, by all means, don't, don't just read it to check the box. Now, I understand. Sometimes you may have to read it faster than you would like. We all have been that way as students. I went through a lot of years of schooling to work on an undergraduate, graduate, doctoral degree, and there are times where it's like, ah, this is really a good assignment, but I, I can't do it as thoroughly as I'd like. We all understand that. They're just the nature of demands. But, but don't do it merely academically. At least, even if you're having to do it quickly, uh, reading, if you're exposing yourself to Scripture, always be thinking, what are the implications of this for my life? What are the applications? What can I take from that? Always read it with a devotional mindset. Now, I don't, I don't know if that helps if you have a follow-up, but I, I know exactly what you're describing. Follow-up, or is that, is that good? Okay, all right. Um, Brian, could you kind of talk to us about um, the, just the, the role of fasting in the believer's life, mm -hmm. um, biblical warrant, uh, purposes, sure. maybe abuses or, or confusions sure. about it? You bet. Great question. Very practical question. Um, 
I would say this about fasting. This is surprising to most Christians because you can go into Christian bookstores and you can find a number of books on fasting and some pretty big ones, like 200 pages. And, and I often, when I see those, I just think, wow, where are they getting all that material? Because in the Old Testament, there was only one prescribed fast by God. Only one. And that was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the, the national day of repentance and mourning of sin, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, etc. So the people were commanded to fast on that day and to mourn their sin and repent of their sin. That's the only commanded fast in the whole Old Testament. Now, there were many other fasts that the Jewish people put in their calendar. And that still to this day, if you, if you know Jewish people, they have fasts as a part of their Jewish calendar. So those came up, and I'm not implying they were bad because they could, they could be good. In other words, if you fast on the Day of Atonement and you realize it's a healthy thing for you spiritually to mourn your sin, then you might say, well, I don't want to just do that once a year. I'll do that on another time or other times, etc. But most of the fasts mentioned in the Old Testament were uh, situation-specific. In other words, when Esther was going to go before the king, which she wasn't allowed to do unless she was summoned, she said, fast and pray so that I don't get killed. So her life was, she was taking her life in her hands. So she asked for uh, her fellow countrymen to fast and pray. And so there were fasts, a lot of fasts mentioned in the Old Testament that were situation-specific, either because of great grief, uh, mourning, uh, those types of things. They often, uh, and we know that, by the way, is the tone of fasting, because when you come into the New Testament and Jesus is asked, why do your disciples not fast? But the disciples of John, the baptizer, do fast. And Jesus basically said, I'm paraphrasing, well, why would my disciples fast? I'm with them. The day will come when I'm gone, then they will miss me, they will mourn being away from me, and they will fast. But his answer gives us another insight that fasting is almost always associated with grief, sorrow, repentance, more, I don't want to use the term, but I don't know other term to use, negative tones, you know, that type of thing. Um, or just uh, no interest in food because of, of some burden on your heart, etc. Um, I think of a, there are a couple significant times in my life when I fasted. One was when I was deciding on where to go for Bible school. I was in high school, and I knew that would be a very significant decision in my life. Uh, and I was going toward vocational ministry. I didn't know what kind. I didn't know if it'd be on the mission field, pastor. But I determined I would just go away for a couple days, fast and pray, and say, God, give me clarity where I should go to Bible school. Um, and so I ended up going 1,500 miles away from Florida up to, up to Chicago. And I look back, and there's no doubt in my mind that God was in that. And it was a, the time I had at Moody was in, just indescribable. It was just did so much for me. That was the hand of God, and I, I, I was thankful that he, he guided my path in that way. The other time I was in Bible school, and I fasted regarding whether or not to ask my wife to marry me, to propose to my wife. Obviously, it's a huge decision in life, getting married. So I just prayed my wife, or not, it wasn't my wife at the time, was having doubts. And I understand that, knowing me, why she had doubts. But uh, she was having doubts. I didn't have doubts. And so I just said, Lord, we need clarity here. You know, if, if you're not in this, then we want to go our separate ways. And if you are, then, then make it clear to her. I don't want to be the one talking her into it. Uh, so anyway, I fasted to, to ask the, the Lord if, if he would be willing to give us clarity on that. So again, those were just times of significant decisions, great burdens on, on your heart, etc. So all that to say, 
In the Old Testament, there's only one prescribed fast. In the New Testament, there are none. There are no commands to fast. The only commands you have in the New Testament about fasting are from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, when you do fast, don't tell others about it. Don't say, oh, I'm fasting. Aren't I spiritual? Look at how spiritual I am. I'm, you know, Jesus said, don't do that. Wash your face. Wash your hair. You know, clean up. Don't just look you know, bedraggled and, and depressed so that everyone will say, what's, you know, what's going on with you? you know, well, I'm fasting. Then you can sort of make it known that you're fasting. Jesus said, don't do that. Do it to your father in secret, and your father will reward you openly. So, uh, so all that to say this, even though you can find a lot of books that give a whole lot of information about fasting, there isn't a lot in it, uh, in the Bible about it. I mean, as far as prescription, this is how many times you do it, or when you should do it, how often you should do it, how long you should do it. All that's said is, when you do it, and of course we're not required now on the Day of Atonement to do it, so in a sense you could say there are no required fasting passages that say you have to fast this way or this many times. It's just that it's understood that there will be times in life where you will set aside food, whether it's maybe one meal or one day or whatever the time frame is, you will just not either be not interested in food or too burdened, too consumed with something that you don't. And by the way, in, in Bible times, one of the reasons why fasting became so uh, connected with lack of food was it was way more difficult for them to prepare food. There were no fast food restaurants, and so preparing food was a big, a long ordeal. So if you've got to spend that long doing that, and you could use that time praying, they chose just to set aside the meal. And it wasn't merely the meal. They would set aside the meal and all the time that it would take to prepare the meal so they could pray. So those are just some thoughts on fasting. Um, but a lot of um, I don't know what terms you want to use here, but a lot of traditions or ideas have grown up within Christianity about fasting, sadly, that you just can't support from the Bible because there, there just isn't a lot there by way of direct prescription. Um, but those are just some of the thoughts of what the Bible says about fasting. So follow up on that, or does that uh, answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. I have a follow-up for that. Yeah, sure. Could you point to a passage that would describe the connection between prayer and fasting and God's response to that? Um, you may be thinking of this, Luke, I'm not sure if you are, but there are a couple occasions in the Gospels, especially in connection with the disciples being unable to cast out demons, and Jesus makes the comment, this, does not, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So there's a connection. However, what you need to notice and just be careful about is that if you look at those texts, I, I don't want to say if I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm almost certain that every one of those are, are later manuscript editions. I, I'm almost certain. Now, you can check it out with your Greek apparatus or whatever, you're, but, but would make sense because, again, coming back to the previous question, a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? A lot of, um, like, old wives' fables, or I don't know what word I'm looking for, have grown up about fasting. And so a lot of these ideas that if you fast, then God will answer your prayer more or something like that. So it's understandable that in a manuscript, if someone's copying it, Jesus said this time does not come out except by prayer, and then someone adds, and fasting. So that's just an interesting connection on the fasting angle, is that that phrase is 
would not occur in like the NASB, or if it's in the NASB, it's going to have a footnote saying this is not in the earliest manuscripts, etc. All right, I think Selim had a question back there, and then we've got one over here too. Okay, follow up on fasting, or oh, hold it, maybe come this way, Danny, because or is yours about fasting also? No. no okay, so. All right. Yeah, kind of coming out of that question, maybe not confined to fasting specifically, mm -hmm. but um, how do you handle or maybe how do you critique uh, resources like your example of, you know, finding books in a Christian bookstore that are, you know, 200 pages on fasting um, that probably has good information. Sure. Um, and so how would you handle resources like that or critique like fasting or money, mm -hmm. handling money that coming out of a, a biblical topic and mm -hmm. drawing from a few biblical sources, but sure. then kind of jump off of that and then they start, you know, sure. going into, you know, more maybe worldly kind of thinking and wisdom. Um, not worldly in a, sure. in a bad way. But right, right. Just maybe not sense. tied so specifically to Scripture. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a great question you ask, and especially in our day and age because there's so much material. I mean, look, Look at what you can find on the internet. I don't mean just in general, but even in their Christian sites. I mean, there is just, and so if there is a, if there is a verse for our day, I think it might be, you know, you could take one of two. Acts 17, 11, where it says of the Bereans, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out if those things were so. Uh, so that would be a great verse, just a, Always sort of have as, a, as the grid through which you, when you're, you're reading a book like that, okay, I want to receive this with all readiness of mind. That is, I don't want to have the mindset of I'm unopened, you know, where I'm stiff-arming things. So I want to receive it with all readiness, and then I want to search the Scriptures to see if it's so. That's one good verse, but another one that may even be better is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Test all things, hold fast what is good. So you just run it by the test of Scripture. So let's say you get a book on fasting, like you say, a couple hundred pages. It's like, boy, how, how are you going to come up with 200 pages if there's not that much in the Bible? Well, I'll read through it, and everything that lines up with Scripture, then I'll hold fast. You know, test all things, hold fast what is good. If it's just sort of the author's ideas and you really can't defend it scripturally, though it may not be, some, like you said, something terrible or bad, then, uh, then I'm not going to put the weight in that that I would put in what he says that can be defended biblically. So yeah, in, in, in all of our resources in Christianity, like you said, whether it's about handling money, handling your time, fasting, any number of topics, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test them all, and then hold fast what is good. Sila. Um, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, it's talk about um, the impartable sin. Mm -hmm. um, my question is kind of, can we commit uh, the impartable sin today? Sure. And why I'm asking is that, uh, the last part of verse 32 said, either in this age or in the age to come. Right, yeah. Uh, so, good, very good question. I'll give the short answer and then I'll defend it. I do not believe we can commit the unpardonable sin today. Uh, and the reason why I don't believe that is because the unpardonable sin had very specific circumstances surrounding it why Jesus made this statement. Uh, what you had is you had Jesus on the earth, bodily present, performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
The Holy Spirit was using that as his evidence to prove the deity and messiahship of Jesus, that he was God in human flesh and the Messiah. So that you could say the Holy Spirit was giving evidence to mankind through the miracles of Jesus. The religious leaders of Israel took that evidence and they knew it was compelling evidence. And they, it was, this is no mistake on their mind. This is no confusion on their mind. They took all the evidence and said it is so compelling, so conclusive, we are going to come out as strong as we can the other way and say that what he's doing, he's doing by the power of Satan. Now, they knew that wasn't true. Even after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was like, we got to kill this guy because everyone's going to believe in Jesus from seeing him. So they knew what they were doing. This was willful. This was direct. This was, the evidence is overwhelming, but... Somehow, because the evidence is so strong and we don't want the masses, the multitudes, to believe in Jesus, we, in, with our exalted positions as religious leaders, are going to come down as hard as we can on this and say, this man is doing what he's doing in the power of Satan. And Jesus said, you, by doing that, have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. How had they blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Because it was the Holy Spirit who gave Jesus the power to do the miraculous signs as evidence and so when you take what you know was the Holy Spirit doing that, and you attribute that to Satan, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So that's why I don't believe technically that we can commit the, the unpardonable sin today, because you would have to have Jesus bodily present, performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, as evidence from the Holy Spirit of His deity and Messiahship, and someone seeing all that evidence, knowing it's true, saying, I am going to come out, come against it as strong as I can the other way and say that is from Satan. Now, sometimes people say, hold it, yeah, but unbelief is the unpardonable sin. No, it's not. I mean, how many of you believed the gospel the very first time you heard it? There may be some in here. Any? None. You know what? You committed the unpardonable sin, unbelief. Well, obviously you didn't because you're saved. So the unpardonable sin is, is the sin that is committed, and it, from that time on, there's no remedy. But unbelief isn't the unpardonable sin, because every one of us here heard the gospel and, and didn't believe it. So we were in the sin of unbelief, but eventually the Lord opened our hearts, and we did believe it. So you can't say, then someone says, yeah, but if you die in unbelief, that's unpardonable. Well, sure, but that's not the same as committing a sin in time and in life, like you said, in this age or the age to come. This can't be forgiven. There's no repentance for this. So I, I, I don't believe we technically can commit the unpardonable sin today. Follow up on that, or does that answer your question, Celia? Um, I think so. Okay. All right, good. All right, a couple up this way, Danny. So my question is about um, Hebrews 6. Um, you know, uh, where it says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Mm -hmm. How do you cope with a passage like that? Yeah. Well, um, Hebrews 6 is, um, it may be the most controversial passage in the New Testament. I remember when I was a student at Moody, one summer I was there, and um, I stayed for summer school, and all the other students were gone. So you, you have the campus basically yourself. There's just a handful of you on campus. And Moody has a good library. And so there happened to be a student, uh, uh, not a Moody student, but a student on campus using the library. He was actually a student at Dallas Seminary. 
and he was writing his doctoral dissertation on Hebrews 6. So I said, oh, well, what's your view? Obviously, because I knew how controversial this passage was. He says, well, I haven't landed yet. I'm just doing my research and my dissertation, but I have found that there are, don't quote me on this, this may not be the exact number, but I think he said, there are 21 plausible explanations of Hebrews 6. So in his doctoral dissertation, he was going to mention all the possibilities and then land, I don't know where he landed. So I, I just say that to say that, yes, it's, uh, anyone, everyone should acknowledge it's a tough passage. Uh, the reason why I personally believe it's tougher than it needs to be is because um, it's so easy to take Hebrews 6 out of its context. And the context of Hebrews is this. We know what the context is because the writer says over in chapter 10, look at chapter 10, and he says near the end of chapter 10, verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made of spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So this is how you started. You're on a good track. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great hope or great reward, for you have need of endurance. So here's the circumstances with the book of Hebrews. You have Hebrew, Hebrew people, Jewish people, who have come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. He just describes that in chapter 10. But they were being persecuted, as he says there in chapter 10. As a result of their persecution as Christians, they were tempted to go back into Judaism. Because in Judaism, they weren't being persecuted. We know this is a fact from the first century that Judaism was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. Christianity was not. So you could be a Jew and practice Judaism. You couldn't be a Christian. So they are tempted to go back into Judaism because of they want to avoid persecution, which is understandable. We all would want to avoid persecution. In order to get them not to do that, the writer of Hebrews seeks to motivate them in two ways. He uses a positive motivation and a negative motivation. His positive motivation is that Jesus is better than all of those things that you hold in high esteem in Judaism. And so one of the key words in Hebrews is better, 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 it's used, or superior, depending on your English translation. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. Jesus is better. Why would you go back into Judaism? Jesus is better. That's the positive motivation. The negative motivation is if you go back into Judaism, you are putting yourself under the rod of God's judgment, which is going to come on Judaism. And it did come on Judaism not too long after this letter was written, because in A.D. 70, the Romans came through and wiped out Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. 1.1 million Jews who were attached to Judaism lost their lives. 1.1 million. Now, let me fast forward to get the end of the story, and then I'll come back to Hebrews 6. We, we don't know from the New Testament how these Hebrew Christians responded to this word of exhortation. By the way, chapter 13, the writer calls it a word of exhortation. He's trying to exhort them. Confidence, endurance, keep going. We don't know, but we do have three extra biblical writers who all comment on this. And I have quotes in my files on the three, what they say. But basically they say this. These Hebrew Christians hurt, got this letter. They received it, they read it, they embraced it, and they decided to make their break 
with Judaism once and for all and to stay true to Jesus. Therefore, when the war with the Romans broke out, since they had no attachment to the temple or Judaism, they left, went over on the east side of the Jordan River to wait out the war. Not one Jewish Christian lost his life in that war, but 1.1 million Jews did lose their lives who were attached to Judaism. So the end of the story has a happy ending. But coming back to Hebrews 6, so what is the writer of Hebrews saying here? I think he's saying this, it's impossible for those who are once enlightened to taste the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, taste of the good word of God, powers of the age to come. It's impossible for those who have embraced Jesus to think that they can fall away, turn back, and that they'll just go back into Judaism until all the persecution passes, and then they'll just repent and come right back and pick it up where they left off. There will be no consequences, no ramifications, no problems. And the writer of Hebrews says that's impossible. You can't turn from Jesus go back into Judaism and just sort of wait it out without there being any consequences. Because basically what you're doing is you're crucifying again the Son of God and you're putting into open, open shame. You've acknowledged he's the Messiah. Now if you go back into Judaism, you're basically saying he's not the Messiah. So you're in a sense re-crucifying him, putting him to open shame because you freely acknowledged him as the Messiah and your actions then would be stating the opposite and there are consequences for that. So if you go back into Judaism, and you attach yourself to Judaism, you will face the judgment of God. Now, let me challenge you to do this. None of you will do this, I know, because the semester's coming, you've got finals. So make this on your to-do list after finals, all right? Read the book of Hebrews, and when you read it, do not impose upon it, when you hear the word judgment, do not impose the word hell. That's not the judgment the writer of Hebrews is warning about. The judgment he's warning about is death. And let the book speak for itself and talk about, if you put yourself under Judaism, you will experience a fiery death. How did the Romans destroy Jerusalem? They burned it. How did they destroy the temple? They burned it. How were so many of the Jews killed? Through fire. You will choose a fiery death. But when most Christians read Hebrews and they hear fiery judgment, what do they assume? Hell. But you're imposing that on the book. So all that to say, I think this is one of the five warning passages in Hebrews. It's the negative motivation, if you will, to these Jewish Christians to say, you can't, once you've tasted the heavenly gift, you've become partakers of the Holy Spirit, you're born again, you're a child of God, you cannot go back into Judaism and just wait it out and expect there to be no consequences. So that's what I think. That it's, a, it's a very strong warning passage. I think it's a warning to Jewish Christians about facing a fiery death in, at the, as, as the rod of God's judgment. So my follow-up to that would be, do you think that that passage can be taken to apply to modern-day Christians who have maybe seen some workings of the Holy Spirit or maybe you know, seen and acknowledged some of the powers of, of God but not quite come to salvation and then left? Do you think that that can be applying to them as well? Well, I, because I don't think it is written, I mean, if you take these terms here that the writer Hebrews uses, enlightened, tasted, partakers, and track those just through the book of Hebrews, every time they are used, they are used to describe full assimilation. Not just sort of tasted like you nibbled, you partook of it. You, the word partakers is the same term used in Hebrews to say Jesus became a partaker of flesh and blood. He fully took it. So I, don't, I have a trouble, and I know this is a very popular view of Hebrews 6, and I have some good friends who hold it, but seeing this as just saying, well, these people have kind of nibbled, tasted, they've kind of experimented with Christianity, but they haven't really become Christians, and so then they fall away. I think this is a description of genuine Christians. So I, 
how the passage could be applied today, I don't think it applies so much to people who sort of play with Christianity but haven't really made a genuine commitment as much as it'd be a warning to us as true Christians that if we think we can just turn from the Lord and play with sin for a while and come back and there be no consequences, we're kidding ourselves. There are always consequences. Now, maybe you don't die at the hands of the Romans in a fiery death, but there are always consequences. Thank you. Yeah. Kind of going back to the, um, the topic of um, uh, the, the unpardonable sin, uh-huh. yeah. I had this, this passage in 1 John uh, 5, and I was just wondering if, if you would say this is related to that, but it's um, verses 16. Uh, if anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit Sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. Right. Yeah. And so I just wondered sure. if you could clarify what you he's bet. talking about. Yeah, I don't personally believe these, this is connected to the, the Matthew 12 unpardonable sin, but it is a very unique passage because John seems to be addressing something that was not uncommon in the first century, namely Christians dying because of their sin. Uh, You have the example of Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. And again, if you take the flow of Acts, it's hard to build the case that they were unchristians or non-Christians. I can't say definitively they knew the Lord, but it's much stronger evidence that they were believers. So you have Ananias and Sapphira dying. You have 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says to the church at Corinth, because you're partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, some of you are sick and some even die. Uh, and you have these kinds of statements scattered throughout the New Testament, which seems to indicate that it was not uncommon in the New Testament era for God to, when he chastened, even chastened to the point of death. So I think that's what John is addressing. I think James addresses it also, by the way, at the end of his letter, where he talks about if you see your brother sinning, rescue him, you may save his life from death. Some translations say soul from death, and then people think of like, eternal salvation. But I think James is saying, you see your brother wandering, you better try to get him back. You may save his life, save him from death. So I think that's what John is saying here. He's saying, listen, if anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, you know, you see your brother in sin, uh, you need to pray for him. Now, that's not all we do. We also know from Matthew 18, we try to rescue him. But he says, you need to pray for him and ask, and he will give uh, him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. So if you see your brother sin and he dies, you know what you don't do? You don't pray for him. There's no praying for the dead. That's nonsense. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, John immediately recognizes that because of this, we could very easily start saying, oh, then we're going to categorize sins. You know, oh, some are to death, so that's a really bad one. This isn't really... So John anticipates that we would start categorizing sins. And so he says, by the way, verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. So I'm not implying that some sin is less significant. All unrighteousness is sin, but there is sin not leading to death. Now, again, this raises the question, why don't we see this happening today as commonly as it seemed to happen in the first century? I mean, listen, as a pastor, there have been times, literally, I've been up front serving, you know, watching the ushers hand out communion, and I know this guy, what he's doing. He has no business taking communion. I wonder why he doesn't die on the spot. But he doesn't. Um, so um, I don't know that I can answer that. Why, but it does seem that it was not uncommon in the first century. I could give you a half a dozen passages of believers 
being chastened unto death. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all today, but it doesn't seem to be the same frequency. So I think that's what John is addressing there. Yeah, good. Uh, whichever way we want to go with it. We've got three questions in two minutes, so something's got to give here. So, Okay, I just have a quick question, or it might not be quick. Um, so Second Chronicles, it's 32, um, 31. And what I'm really looking at is when it says that God tested Hezekiah, and he said God withdrew from him in order to test him, um, to sort of test his heart. Could you explain that, like, um, just a little more detail? Um, and also, can it happen today, like, for believers? Okay, yeah. So you, everybody, it sounds like you've turned, you found the verse. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to acquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. I think, uh, I don't know that I would read too much into that statement, like God forsook him or whatever. I think the author is just saying God backed off. In other words, God did not stop him from doing wrong in that occasion. I mean, doesn't God do that for us sometimes? Does he do it for you? I know he does for me. There are times I'm going headlong the wrong direction, and God, by his grace, just stops me. He doesn't always stop me. And so in this case, I think the writer is just saying, you know, God withdrew. That is, God didn't step in and stop him. God could have. He could have said, what are you doing? Telling these guys about, and if you know the story, he, they came, these ambassadors came, and he showed him all his riches and all that in the temple. And then after they left, the Lord, through his prophet, said, why did you do that? Why would you do that? Expose all of this to those who have been enemies, etc. So he, he, he did wrong. We don't know what his motivation was for that. But I just take it that the writer is saying, God didn't step in and stop him, which he could have done. He could have sent you know, a prophet in advance and said, don't show him the treasures of the temple. But God didn't. He just let it go to see how it would play out. Not as if God didn't know. But it was a test, and unfortunately he failed the test. So in answer to us today, can that same parallel happen? I think absolutely. Because the fact is, God doesn't always step in and stop us when we're headed towards sin. There are times when God just allows it to unfold, and it's a test of our own hearts as well. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're at 11.50. Do we cut or do one more? What do we, what do, we do here? I, I have no preference. We've got lunch at noon, right? All right. So, like, when you're trying to figure out what you believe in all these different <coughs> theologies and sure. you're hearing different sides of each theology and you're trying to land on one, sure. how do you avoid just picking whichever one is favorable to you? Yeah. So, like, you hear both sides and both sides are biblical, seemingly, sure. and so it's just kind of like how do you not just you know, say, okay, I believe this because I'm more comfortable with this. Right. Yeah. Um, the way you do that is to do exactly what you've done right there. You start by acknowledging that you have a bias. If you don't start there, you're never going to ever have any objectivity. Now, I'm not convinced that that total objectivity is possible for us. So it's almost better just to say, I know I have a bias, and I just need to acknowledge that and try to fight it. Um, because, yeah, it's something that we all face. Uh, we, we do. And so you start by that. And so, um, you know, what, what's a, a good practice to do, and this isn't easy for any of us to do, but is to try to, when we're debating things, even with friends, to try to make the debate not emotional but more factual. 
what are the facts, you know, what, uh, but it, even saying that, that's, you know, that's really hard for us. I, I think we all acknowledge that. And so, at least what should come out of that is when we do land, we should land with some humility. Because, um, one, we could, we could be wrong. Certainly we could be wrong. And two, we could be wrong because we're not even willing to let the facts speak for themselves. So, um, you know, I don't know that there are any easy answers other than to... to to, you know, Paul even said this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I, I don't know anything against myself, but I'm not justified by that. Because he recognized even I don't know that I'm unbiased about obsessing my own life. So um, that's why he starts the chapter by saying, you know, it's a pretty small thing for me that you judge me. I, your judgment doesn't, it's not a big deal to me because I'm not sure your judgment is accurate. I'm not even sure my judgment is accurate. Only the Lord's is accurate. So I think that we just have the humility. Follow up on that? Yeah. yeah. Is it okay to not land? Yeah. Yeah. I think, it's, I think that's fine. In fact, I think that's a mark of humility just to say, I'm still trying to wrestle through this. I, you know, there are times when I, I'm preaching through, because I preach through books, I don't have the option of avoiding passages. When it comes to the passage, I've got to deal with it. And if I don't know what it's saying then I will, I will say, I, I, can, I can probably grab at least a half a dozen sermons I could pull out and show you where I just say, you know what, here's a, co here's a couple ways to take this. Uh, Peter may be saying this, and here's the evidence for that. Peter may be saying this, here's the evidence for that. Both are true biblically, which he's saying here, I'm not sure. You're just going to have to wrestle through that. Both are true, and they just leave it up to, you know, that when I was in Nicaragua a couple weeks ago training the pastors there, that was one of the things I emphasized with them, too, is just, hey, don't, if you're going to preach expositionally through books, don't feel like you always have to land. You, you do have to at least wrestle with it and, and give diligence. And, and give when you're presenting it to your people, you have to do so with some you know, semblance of, uh, of responsibility, that you've studied it and you've wrestled with it, etc. But if you don't know or you're not confident, you're not confident. It's better to say... Better to do that than what I did early on. I preached, I remember years ago, I preached through John 15. And I took the passage, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know that passage. And I, there's a really tough phrase in there where it talks about branches being cast aside and burned. Is that unbelievers who go to hell? Is that believers who are refined by fire? Anyway, I preached it one way. I don't remember which way I preached it. But I remember a few months later, I was studying, I thought, that's, I, I, don't, I, th I think I was wrong last time. So I re-preached it. And my introduction was, this was in the days of cassette tapes. We don't have cassette tapes anymore. But I just said, if any of you bought the cassette tape from a few months ago when I preached on John 15, please do me a favor and throw it away. We'll give you a new one for free. Because I said, I've changed my view, and I think now this is what the passage is saying. Now, the second interpretation may have been wrong. I don't, you know, but, but all you can do is wrestle with it, and, and, and if, you, if you don't, don't have enough facts to be definitive. And it's okay to be pretty strong at times. If the facts are overwhelming, this is what the passage is saying, then you can say it. But if it's divided and the facts aren't as conclusive, I think it's better just to say, here's the strengths and weaknesses of both views, and I'm still wrestling. So, good. All right, that's it. Close in prayer and go to lunch, all right? Father, thanks for time together. Thank you for uh, these students and their heart for you, their heart for your word. And uh, thank you for those that are visiting here today, the campus of NBC, 
And uh, as they're just trying to think through, pray through their future and what you would have for them, pray you'd give them clear guidance and direction as they pray through that and wrestle through that. And I pray for the students now as the semester is winding down. And I know it starts becoming crunch time with papers due and reading due and, and uh, tests, other assignments, projects. And it just uh, almost sometimes feels like there aren't enough hours in the day. So I pray for diligence and discipline and uh, pray just for uh, the endurance to finish well, to finish strong over the next uh, two to three weeks. Grant them that grace, I would ask in Jesus' name. Amen.